Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 13. The Great Divorce, Chapter 9. Meeting George. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We are currently in Season 2, and unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and I'm joined by my dear friend and co-host, David, who helps me every day to come closer to saying to God, Thy will be done. (laughs) Well, maybe not every day, maybe once a week. (laughs) You really helped me get over my ego, that's for sure. You're welcome. And that's a good step in the way of thy will be done. A lot of people say that. People think I'm just being mean. No, I'm just helping people overcome their full selves. That's exactly right. You're being a saint. You're welcome. You're welcome, world. <laughs> oh, so what do we got for the quote of the week today? The quote of the week comes from the character that we're going to meet in this new chapter, George MacDonald. Oh, this is going to be a good character. I love him so much. Plus, I get to speak with a funny accent, because normally I don't speak with an accent. <laughs> okay, here we go. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it will be opened. Wow. This section is probably one of my favorites of the entire book. So first, listeners, click that rewind 30 seconds and listen to that again. (laughs) This is the quote of the week, the quote of the month, the quote of the year, the quote of the book, Mm -hmm. and potentially, I would argue, the quote of C.S. Lewis. Like, if you follow this one quote and get nothing else out of C.S. Lewis, the idea that we choose hell and choosing heaven is saying yes to God and saying, thy will be done. We, we don't need to do anymore. You've, you've learned the, the best of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And this heart, this is heavenly and hellish creatures. Yes. What you choose is where you go. And that helps people so much with the idea of heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. How could a good God send people to hell? Well, there you go. You chose it. So with that, I have decided with the Exodus 90 to use my dispensation for the week. <laughs> now, not for the week, my weekly one for the day. To have cider. Angry Orchard Hard Cider. Crisp Apple. Nice. In the last couple of weeks, I've had two different bachelor parties to go to, and I figured that I I couldn't be completely teetotal, so I had one drink in each. So the first one, I had a shot of tequila, and in the second one, I had a nice Guinness. That's very charitable of you. Well, you know, again, this is just me. (laughs) But I am curious, what does a David Bates friendship bachelor party look like? Well, they were both very different. Uh, The first one, we headed out on the town and tore up North Park. And in the second one, we went downtown and we ended up, we started at Elevation, uh, which is one of those rooftop bars in downtown. Oh, yeah. And then we went to the Shout House, which is where they have Mm. the dueling pianos. I love the Shout House. Yeah, I figured you would. (laughs) It's so much fun. It's a good date spot. If you're a few dates into a new relationship, I mean, just in general, any stage, but really good in the first few, you've had a few one-on-one dinners, or you've got a great chance to get to know each other, and now you just need a little more fun involved, Shout House. 
Yeah. Always make sure you have enough money because generally if they call you up onto the stage to do something like dance or sing, make sure you've got enough money so you can pay off the pianists so you don't actually have to do that. I got up there and sang of course Sugar, <laughs> Sugar by Maroon 5 uh, to the, the girl I was dating at the time. Oh, dear. False set. And it didn't last. Shocker. <laughs> that, was, that was a problem. She ended it right after that. She's like, nope, no way. Uh, what did you think of the uh, video I sent you earlier this week? Uh, listeners, I sent Matt a video from The Great Divorce Project. I think it basically shut down. But the idea was that different filmmakers would record scenes from The Great Divorce. And I found one featuring one character that we're going to meet in this chapter, the artist. I'm more interested what you thought of it. I really liked it. Uh, I love the fact that somebody else wanted to do this. Uh, and I've naturally quibbled over some of the dialogue that was a little different from the book. Love it. I think you summed it up. I don't need to say my side. <laughs> <laughs> Matt didn't watch it. Slacker. You should, you should. I will say this. I'm going to compliment you. I don't. People send me stuff all the time, but I, I really, because of that nonprofit I work with, is Pines with Jack and work in theology books. I, I fill my time very intentionally, and I don't. People send me stuff. I don't really listen to it. I don't know. If, you don't view other people <clears throat> as important enough. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that's another way of phrasing it. I'd like to think I've just cultivated and curated a, a stream of information that I like. And of course, from time to time, I do. But you, and you're now close-minded enough not to open yourself to anything else. Great. <laughs> if okay. they convince me, it's right. But you, I listen to more than anything yours. And, and this wasn't anything to do with that, though. This was just because it's my busiest, one of my four busiest times of the year, so I didn't get to it. But I do usually listen to your stuff, your talks. Okay. Well, I've actually got another one to send, send you. I was back up in LA this last weekend, speaking about God's mercy. But... Something else you probably won't have noticed is we're now on IGTV. So what is IGTV? Well, exactly. <laughs> what is IGTV? <laughs> uh, I only recently came across it. Instagram is basically trying to eat YouTube's lunch. So you can upload 10 minute videos. And fortunately, most of our YouTube series is under 10 minutes. So if you now go to the Instagram TV icon, you'll see that I'm in the process of uploading all of our videos from that video series that we did a while back. That's really cool. And actually, I could see them eating some of it. Anyway, you said you had something to tell me about your mom. <laughs> She's been coming up more often uh, after we already just talked about her getting finally caught up. She's through episode 32. And she completely stopped after that binge. She's, she needs another long car drive, clearly, to listen to her son uh, on a podcast. Ah, uh, now I see where you get it from. Get what from? Oh, yeah, see? See? It's nothing personal. She doesn't even listen to her own son. <laughs> it's in my blood. <laughs> she, she's very intentional with her time, too, and I guess doesn't. it takes a lot to break into it. Doesn't rate you highly enough. But, gotcha. but she's telling me that she got through the episode where I made the greatest blunder of my life. Please be more specific. <laughs> oh, I will. David had zero mercy on me. What I'm referring to is the David Copperfield moment. <laughs> I, not well read in English literature, had no idea that David Copperfield was anything more than a musician, did not know that it was a book or a character of Charles Dickens. And so I'm sitting here in that episode, David brings it up, and my mom, we were just laughing about it. She goes, as, I'm, as this is playing out, 
when you started talking, I said to myself, oh, Lord, Matt, don't say what I think you're going to say. Don't do it. Because she goes, I remember that when you were in elementary school, I took you to a David Copperfield magician with the hookstras. We all went together, family, friends, and you loved David Copperfield. And so she goes, I knew you didn't know who, what that really was referring to. And she goes, and then you did. <laughs> and I said, oh. Uh, and she thought <laughs> and to herself, David my did. son. I have failed. <laughs> I thought I was proud of him. No, not anymore. And of course, as listeners would guess, David did not cut that. No, that one was too good. I, I've cut a lot. That one, <laughs> that one was just too good. It needed to be shared. I told my mom, you've cut a lot of stuff. And she goes, I want the unedited versions. No, I actually delete them. I, I, I do have a, a bloopers folder on my Google Drive, which I will at one point... <laughs> I'm just going to edit an entire, an entire episode of the gaffes that we make. Oh, man. Well, we've stolen the listeners enough time. Now we probably should jump in. Should I do the summary? Yes. This chapter is really rather long, so we're probably going to end up breaking this into two episodes, but we'll see how we go. Cue the music. Lewis meets another bright spirit, his hero, the Scottish writer and theologian George MacDonald. He asks him whether the ghosts can really stay. MacDonald assures him they can. He says that for those who go back, there's always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. They talk about the different ways people become ensnared. At this point, they hear a ghost complaining at enormous speed to one of the solid people. MacDonald says that the issue is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. Leaning on MacDonald's arm, They walk away and see many different kinds of ghosts. They see one of the solid people talking with a ghost who was a famous artist on Earth. He is horrified to discover that his art has been completely forgotten on Earth and rushes back to the gray town, determined to maintain his legacy. Another well done one, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, as I said, this is a long chapter, so getting that down to 150 words was difficult. So before we get stuck into chapter 9, let's just recap what happened in the previous chapter. We had the self-conscious ghost, who was always trying to push away the bright spirit who was trying to help her. And do you remember the Latin phrase that I used in our earlier episodes of the season? Actually, Matt, do you remember the Latin phrase that I kept using? Do I get any more hint? Nope. Yeah, no. On a soul turned in on itself. It's from St. Augustine. Incurvatus in se. And we saw that in the self-conscious ghost. She was so turned in on herself that she couldn't accept help. And she was turned in on herself because she was ashamed of her appearance. And because of that, she was trapped in a prison of her own making. And the bright spirit, after he's tried to reason her out of her position, he calls upon a herd of unicorns in an attempt to shock her, to prompt her to reach out for help. And we get the answer in this episode on that. And I, I ventured, I was close, but I actually would say I was slightly off. All right. Okay. I'm going to be interested to see why you think you were slightly off. Yeah. I mean, I was, the general was right, but there was a specific thing that I was like, oh, okay. There's one extra point there, I'd say. Okay. Well, actually, by the way, I didn't say what my drink was. I'm drinking an almond milk latte this morning. Hmm. So I'm just going to sip a little bit of my latte and let's uh, get stuck into the next chapter. I love that these chapters are lining up perfectly with me leading one's 
and you leading ones that really you like the the Episcopal ghost. You love that one. You got to lead it just mm. naturally. And then yeah. this one, George MacDonald, you get to do your accent. And it just naturally, it lined up perfectly. <laughs> it's like God wants you to lead this one. Uh, people are going to hear a lot of my bad Scottish accent over the next few weeks. <laughs> All right, let's go. So Lewis is terrified by the unicorns and he flees the scene and comes into open country. And he comes across a new bright spirit who is sitting on this smooth, large rock. And Lewis says that this is one of the first times that he's actually looked these spirits in the face. And he describes how beautiful they are. He describes this spirit as an enthroned and shining god, whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. And he says how they appear both young and old at the same time. And there was a lovely line in here, or is it? Um, he said, And I divined the network of wrinkles which must have surrounded his eyes before rebirth had washed him in immortality. Beautiful. Does this not make you think of theosis? This, this is a man who has gone through the transformation process. I divine the network of wrinkles just made me think of the suffering and the struggles he must have gone through mm-hmm. to die to his old self and be reborn. I mean, Lewis, I don't know. I, I want to assume he's incredibly intentional with all of this stuff. But part of me wonders if it's just natural for him. Like he's just so, he's so in tune with what theosis is like. He's just describing this. Like to me, that was an incredibly thought out sentence Mm. that I would think would have taken a whole day to think through. And maybe for him, it just rolled off the (laughs) fingers. Yeah. And I like your point about the wrinkles were there from his life on earth. And you and I have had this conversation when we were discussing mere Christianity. I spoke about the Casting Crown song that said, I think incorrectly, that Christ's scars are going to be the only ones in heaven. And I argued, it's like, nah, I, I think everyone's scars are going to be there, but they're going to be things of glory when there were scars that came in the service of the Lord. They're going to, as we, we're going to learn later in this chapter, you're going to look back and they were, you're proud of them. They're heavenly. They, they made you who you are. Yeah. The bright spirit asks him where he's going. And when Lewis says he doesn't really know, after all, he's just been chased away by a bunch of unicorns, the spirit invites him to sit and talk to him. And the ghost introduces himself as George MacDonald. Now, George MacDonald was a real person. He was a 19th century Scottish clergyman. He was a novelist and a children's author and really one of the very first fantasy writers. Lewis was a huge fan of MacDonald's and he put together an anthology of his works I actually read earlier this year. And at the beginning of that book, Lewis says that MacDonald's work baptised his imagination and that Lewis had never written a book where he didn't actually quote him. I imagine George MacDonald to Lewis is Lewis to us. Absolutely. And someone's told me before in talks I've given, please limit to one or two C.S. Lewis quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but could you imagine as I'm reading that, he's describing this moment of meeting this individual who... Meeting his hero. His hero. And he's like, I have so many questions coming to his mind. This person won't <laughs> deceive me. I'm thinking to myself, gosh, this would be just like if David and I met C.S. Lewis. We could ask him anything and just trust that what he says is probably right and we would want to follow it. Yeah. Like you say, in the book, Lewis is now much more confident. He says, well, I, I've had all of these questions. Because if you recall, the hard-bitten ghost had really pull a lot of things in his head that he was really now worried about. But now that he's met MacDonald, he says, oh, okay, I'm going to get good, straight answers. Perfect. And it's, it's quite cute because in the text, Lewis becomes a bit of a fanboy. 
He says, I tried, trembling, to tell this man all that his writings had done for me. And you can actually read about this in Surprised by Joy. He goes on and says, I tried to tell how a certain frosty afternoon at Leatherhead Station, when I first bought a copy of Fantasties, being then about 16 years old, had been to me what the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. Here begins the new life. And that probably requires a little bit of explanation. It's a really appropriate comparison because MacDonald is going to be in this book, in The Great Divorce, what Beatrice was to Dante in The Divine Comedy. Dante is guided through hell, purgatory, and heaven. First by Virgil, who was a writer who he really admired, and then later by Beatrice, who was a lady whom he deeply loved. He was obsessed with her. And that's what MacDonald is going to do for the rest of this book. He's going to be Lewis's guide. But MacDonald brings Lewis's fanboying to the end. This is, this is just so sweet. Lewis says, He laid his hand on mine and stopped me. Son, he said, Your love, all love, is of inexpressible value to me. But it may save precious time. Here, he suddenly looked very scotch. If I inform you that I am already well acquainted with all these biographical details. In fact, I have noticed that your memory misleads you in one or two particulars. Oh, said I, and became still. <laughs> <laughs> I think of that always with conversations with God, going to confession, asking for forgiveness. And it's like, you can't deceive him. He knows all the biographical details. Let's get to the heart of what's really going on here. Mm -hmm. I'm deeply sorry and all this stuff. You don't have to explain it. This is why it happened. You know, I had this going on in my life. He knows. <laughs> I like the little bit where MacDonald points out that Lewis's memory is playing a, a few tricks on him. Because, funnily enough, Lewis's memory would eventually mislead him concerning his first reading of MacDonald. Ten years after he writes The Great Divorce, he writes Surprised by Joy and recounts that encounter at Leatherhead Station. And it actually turns out he gets some of the details wrong. When I went to that conference a few weeks ago and I met Andrew Lazo, he's super on top of it, all these kinds of issues. And he mentioned that Lewis actually gets the dates wrong. So Lewis isn't perfect. But he prophetically predicts it here. <laughs> <laughs> you would find some way that it's, it's like divinely inspired. Well, it's pretty impressive. He writes in a book that he meets his hero and tells him about the story. And his hero says, eh, you're not remembering it quite right. And then 10 <laughs> years later, he writes the story of it and he doesn't remember it quite right. Oh, my goodness. That is pretty prophetic. <laughs> anyway, MacDonald prompts Lewis to ask the questions which have been troubling him since meeting the hard-bitten ghost. And so Lewis asks him, do any of these ghosts stay? Can they stay? Is there any real choice offered to them? And how is it they even come to be here? And MacDonald asks him if he'd never heard of the refrigerium. He says, somebody as well-read as you will have come across it in Prudentius and Jeremy Taylor. Thankfully, he explained it, so I didn't have to look it up. <laughs> and thankfully, you have a co-host who goes and looks these things up. Oh, I'm so thankful. So Prudentius, he was a 4th, 5th century Christian poet from Rome. And Jeremy Taylor was a Church of England cleric in the 17th century. We don't really need to go into much detail about the refrigerium. If listeners would like to know more, Joseph Pierce's book, the guy that I interviewed a few episodes ago, in his book, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, he goes into much more detail about the refrigerium. But it's not really important for our purposes because it was only just the seed of an idea that Lewis took to give us the great divorce. 
MacDonald gives a little summary. He explains that those who are in hell, if they want, they can take holidays to heaven. And they can actually even stay if they want. And he mentions that the Emperor Trajan did this. And I actually reached out to another podcaster, Joy Clarkson, to ask her what she thought he's thinking of here. And she confirmed what I had suspected. There's a reference to Trajan being in purgatory in Dante's Divine Comedy. The funny thing is that Madonna says that while they can come to heaven, they can also go back to earth. And he says that some go back and play tricks on spiritualists and mediums. And literary ghosts hang around libraries seeing if anyone is still reading their books. Which is also kind of funny because Lewis was convinced that people wouldn't read him much after he had died. Really? <laughs> yeah, Walter Hooper, his secretary, said it was the only argument that he ever had with Lewis that he actually won. Because Hooper said, no, no, people will read you after you're gone. Lewis said, no, no, no. Hooper was right. Do you have any idea roughly how well he was read? Because hasn't, hasn't now mere Christianity... The number I want to say sticks in my head is like tens of millions, if not like 50 million copies sold. Oh, if you include time, he's more popular now than he was then. Would you say then maybe he, he was still considered like a, a New York Times best-selling author of a million copies kind of thing? He was that famous or not even that? No, no, he was, he was very well known. But I would say his legacy is even greater after his death. And in no small part due to people like Walter Hooper, who made sure that his books remained in print. Because what Hooper did is, after Lewis's death, he went through all of the manuscripts and started assembling the incomplete books so that they could still be published. But then he made a deal with the publishers that for each new book that he gave them, they had to bring out one of Lewis's old books to keep them in print. And also, in no small part, people like David Bates starting C.S. Lewis groups or C.S. Lewis podcasts. Well, I'm just kind of with Hooper. I think Lewis is important. People should read him. And so let's make that as easy as possible. <laughs> I love it. It's at this stage that Lewis then asks, he's going through these questions with George MacDonald. With that Rev Frigger... <laughs> <laughs> Refrigerium, that's going to stay in, isn't uh, it? <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping that. Refrigerium. <laughs> Refrigerium. With that Refrigerium, I, Lewis was clearly thinking the same thing I was thinking as I'm reading that. Someone's in hell, they're taking a holiday to heaven. It's a natural question to ask, can those in hell actually get to heaven? And the answer is nuanced, because he responds, not exactly. To those that leave, it will not have been hell, but simply a part of the journey to heaven. And to those that stay, or I should say stay in hell, so they would leave this place, they'll have been in hell the whole time. And that's interesting because, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, but is that, so it would never have been hell. It's hard to wrap your head around that idea. It's a part of the journey. It's like that process of purgatory almost, but it's actually arguing that that place you're in, which we'll learn later might be more of a state of mind, but that place you're in is both simultaneously hell, but it could be heaven. It could be purgatory. I mean, it is a really hard concept. Yeah. The, the key passage here is he says, if they leave that green town behind, it will not have been hell. If any leave it, it is purgatory. And this just makes a lot of sense to me. Again, this is an imaginative supposal. Lewis isn't saying that this is how the afterlife is. But that does make a lot of sense to me. I really didn't enjoy school. And when I was there, it was hell. 
But looking back, it was purgatory. (laughs) (laughs) It prepared me for the life that was going to come after school. And I was better for having gone through that. But if you'd made me stay there for eternity, that would have been hell. That's an incredible way. You know what? This is the second time, I think, in this entire podcast where you have pulled off to the point where I'm like, that's a Lewis-esque analogy. Booyah. Yeah, that that was worthy of a Lewis one. That (laughs) makes a lot more sense. If I stayed there for eternity, it would have been hell. That line right there. And it's a choice, as we'll learn. And if that wasn't shocking enough, McDonald then goes on and teaches us that both good and evil, when they're full-grown, they become retrospective. He says that for those who arrive in heaven, they will have always have been there. Whether they were in the foothills of heaven, which is where we currently are, he calls it the valley of the shadow of life, or if they'd been in the grey town, or even on earth. And likewise, for those who stay in the grey town, they will always have been in hell. It's this idea that winning heaven will colour all of the suffering which you've sometimes experienced in the pursuit of heaven. And likewise, the attainment of hell will work backwards, and it ends up polluting the pleasures of the sins that brought a man there. He describes the type of person. So you're in the moment, let's say, you're in a temporal person, and eventually you're going to choose heaven, but you're, you're, you're going through suffering, some sort of temporal sin. He goes, no future bliss can make up for it. That's exactly what it does do down the road. When you experience heaven, you realize that that is such an amazing bliss and that suffering is what formed you to be able to say yes to it. Then it is the greatest thing. And to give you another of my own analogies, I don't think this one's quite as good, but I certainly relate to it. (laughs) When you're at the gym and you're working out and you've got nothing left and you're thinking to yourself, nothing is worth this. But eventually it will. Eventually you'll look back and be glad you spent that time at the gym, you'll be glad that you stayed for that extra 10 minutes. You'll be glad you put those extra few pounds on whatever it was you were lifting. I'm going to make that slightly more shallow. (laughs) That's my job. You're, you're in the gym. You're like, this is just not worth it. Those last few that really cut you up. Now I'm speaking from the guy's perspective. And then you go to the beach and this woman who just knocks you off your feet with this beauty walks up to you. And because you are a little more chiseled, starts chatting with you. And you're like, that was worth it. Listeners, I would like to reassure you that has never happened to either of us. (laughs) It's all in my head. It's a state of mind. Well, speaking of a state of mind, that's exactly the question that Lewis asks. He says, so is it true that heaven and hell are simply a state of mind? And McDonald's just goes, hush, don't blaspheme. But he does partially agree. He says that hell is, in a manner of speaking, a state of mind. Because he says that every mind, when it's left to itself, when it's shut up, that when a creature is shut up in the dungeon of its own mind, it will become hell. But he says that heaven isn't a state of mind at all. He says it's reality itself. That's why we've been stressing, and that's something I've been wanting to hit home in this whole book. This is ultimate reality. I keep using that word. This is where that really gets hit home. Heaven is reality. As it was meant to be, before it was fallen, as God intended it, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can't bend it. You can't change it. You have to submit to it and accept it. And not in a submissive way, in a way that leads to joy, happiness, an incredible way. It's good for you. MacDonald describes it as the opposite of a mirage. Mm, I didn't, I 
missed that actually. I read this brain dead last night, so that's <laughs> that's great. Lewis then tries to fit what McDonald has been telling him into a theological framework, but obviously has difficulty because it doesn't fit neatly into either the Catholic or Protestant understanding of the afterlife. <laughs> I love McDonald's response. He basically dismisses the question and tells him that he couldn't possibly understand it at this time. And he rather cryptically says that you were not brought here to study such curiosities. What concerns you is the nature of the choice itself, and that you can watch them making. And that's one of the things that I do love about this chapter. We finally get the answers to so many questions. We start to understand the nature of the Greytown, the nature of the place where Lewis currently is, the valley of the shadow of life. And we also now finally understand why Lewis is there. It's not to answer questions about the afterlife. It's about the choice that people make. And we're going to be meeting people who are making a choice, either towards God or towards themselves. Bringing back that Latin phrase, incurvatus in se, a soul either turning in on itself or a soul that is opening itself to God. When things become the end themselves, that becomes the issue. And so it's all about submitting to ultimate reality, to God's will. He also said, you cannot fully understand the relations of choice and time till you are beyond both. I am not as familiar with the Protestant. I haven't studied in depth, although I went to a Protestant high school. But it seems Lewis also agrees with this. He made the comment of it falls as it lies or lies as it falls. And so you've lived your life a certain way. You've accepted God, faith, belief. And then afterwards, that's, you know, you've cast your lot, essentially. With our faith, from the Catholic perspective, there's that purgation process. But if you actually genuinely think about it, if there is no such thing as time, those two might be very similar, actually. We think of them as very different because it's this long, drawn out process of purging yourself. Yet there's no such thing as time. It could be instantaneous. We have no idea, um, which would almost be saying the other thing. You've lived a certain way. You've, you've wanted God, but you still have some cleansing to do. Happens immediately, and before you know it, you're in heaven. Like, we, just, we can't wrap our heads around that. So I was reading that thinking, those might be a lot closer than we think. One just might be a more earthly way of describing it. Yeah, I, I think it's poking back into McDonald's history. He was brought up as a Calvinist, and they have very strong opinions on choice and free will. Uh, but I just love the way that Lewis just punts the question. He says, <laughs> you can't understand it until you're beyond it. So let's just move on. Yeah, I love that. This is a great chapter. So we move on and Lewis then asks the fundamental question of this book. What actually is the choice that's being made? He's seen so many ghosts turn away from heaven and head back. And he asks MacDonald, what are they actually choosing? And MacDonald responds by quoting Paradise Lost. He says, Milton was right. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is something they always prefer to joy, that is, to reality. And this little section here, this was, this was the number one competitor for Quote of the Week. This is the number one competitor for Quote of the Week, month, year, book, Lewis. It's saying the same thing. This is just more artsy, cutesy, and a little bit less direct. But that, that, that's exactly what God, thy will be done versus my will be done. Uh, that, that This quote is nailing it. And in fact, it's a more fun one to say, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And MacDonald compares it to a child who's sulking. The, the child would prefer to suffer than admit he was wrong and to say sorry. I mean, just think back to your own childhood when you knew you had the option of 
if you went and apologized, everything would be fine and you would get your dinner or dessert or whatever it, whatever punishment was being given to you. But he says that grown-ups do this too. They just have more dignified names for it. Like injured merit and self-respect, proper pride. Lewis then asks MacDonald if people are lost through what he calls the undignified vices, mere sensuality. And MacDonald says that some no doubt are, and he then unpacks the theology that we've already encountered in mere Christianity, this idea that the sins of the flesh are less than the sins of the spirit. And he points out that the sensualist, he is pursuing a real pleasure, but it becomes like drug addiction, that over time the pleasure decreases and the craving becomes fiercer. And we should point out, he says the sins of the flesh, pleasure, it's seeking a good. So let's use chastity as an example. Uh, It's seeking a beautiful thing, a union between two, a love, an expression of that love, but in the wrong way. So there is still a bad in it if it's done outside of, you know, unchastity, I should say. But here he says, how does this degradate, though? Even that part that's good, how, how can it turn into it? And here's what he says. But the time comes on when, though the pleasure becomes less and less and the craving fiercer and fiercer, and though he knows that joy can never come that way, Yet he prefers to joy the mere fondling of unappeasable lust and would not have it taken from him. So the fondling... Oh, oh yeah. d- d- don't end there. The next line. He'd fight to death to keep it. Ah, <laughs> I stopped a little early. <laughs> but doesn't that sound like drug addiction? That sounds like drug addiction. That sounds like alcoholism. That sounds like lust, premarital sex. I mean, all of those give you a massive addicting dopamine hit. It's the tragic quality to it that the person can see that this is only going to get worse, but they still keep pursuing it. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I watched Beautiful Boy. It's got Steve Carell, the guy from The Office. I was so depressed for like a week afterwards, though. When you see... A human just disintegrate, losing themselves to this other thing outside of them that they know is not going to bring them everything that they want, but they still keep pursuing it. I see that happen in my own life. And then we talk about it. We're talking about it from bigger issues like lust, drunkenness, drugs. That happens with technological addiction. And that breaks my heart to see social media addiction. So David was sending me, he, he actually told me he's starting to post these things, these videos on IGTV. And like, I can't look at it. I've taken all YouTube, social media, anything off my phone, because I found that you look at it at multiple times throughout the day and sometimes before your bed or when you wake up and and I find my life is more miserable. I find I'm more stressed. I find uh, a lot of negative things happen, but you can't stop. Or TV, watching TV in the evening. Sometimes I need it to go to bed and then I'm like, my sleep is worse and I wake up more unhappy. But the next night I get to the night and it's like, you're so, your willpower is so drained. I need to watch a TV show to fall asleep. Like I've gone through periods like that. And then I wake up at 3am and have to watch an episode of, I mean, it's just a really dangerous thing. Actually on this point, I have a good tip for you and our listeners. A couple of weeks ago, I updated my phone so that it is now grayscale. So I now have no colors on my phone. Huh? Just black, white, and gray. And my usage is now down 50% because the iPhone will actually give me statistics. I'm on my phone half the amount simply by removing color. That's impressive. I remember talking to a friend who, we were talking about phone usage and I was saying, yeah, some of these, I usually try to keep my phone time because screen time tells it now. About under an hour a day if I can. 
And she goes, yeah, you know, sometimes it's like two or three hours for me. We're talking about social media. I'm like, two or three hours isn't bad. She goes, oh, I mean, just on Instagram alone. I'm like, holy <laughs> cow. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> got me off guard. I thought she meant total phone usage. I'm like, some people, the average, I think, in the U.S. is like five or six hours for t- phone usage. Yeah. I'm like, if I hit two hours, that's like a terrible day. And I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking this is actually probably a good place to end this chapter. So we will pick this up next week because for the rest of this chapter, we're going to be doing some character studies. Madonna is going to tell us some stories and we're going to meet some ghosts and we're going to see what it is that they're choosing, why they're turning back. And I think I'm just going to summarize it now. They often mistake the means for the end. Well, even though this is the end of the first part, we can't miss the haikus, David. All right, let's, let's, let's do the... I, I wrote a bunch of haikus for this chapter, so let's pull out the ones that are for the issues that we've dealt with so far. So my first couple are when Lewis meets George. Who is this spirit? Perhaps a shepherd of some sort? A guide for my path? And then the next one's the response from MacDonald. If you are aimless, why not spend some time with me? We could chat a while. And then I tried to write a couple of haikus relating to this idea that virtue and vice are retrospective, that when you come to heaven, that it colors all of your past. And likewise, those who are in hell will say that they've always been there. The name of the town, it may change if you leave it, hell or purgation. <laughs> you had to switch it to purgation. <laughs> yes, I couldn't get purgatory. Having written one myself, now I totally understand. <laughs> And, and, and this, this one is from the, from the mouth of MacDonald. A self-centered mind becomes a dungeon of hell, trapped there forever. That's the best one so far. Virtues and vices can become retrospective, coloring the past. That's good, but I like that one better. And when they're discussing the nature of the choice, whether they stay here or they go back to the town, you can choose yourself or you can choose to love God. You'll get your desire. Mm, that one's... That or the self-centered mind are the best ones. I think that's probably my favorite. Yeah. No, we'll have to save the next ones for next week. Okay. So we'll speak to you all next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.